From the JAMA Network, this is the JAMA Medical News Podcast. Discussing timely topics in clinical medicine, biomedical sciences, public health, and health policy featured in the medical news section of JAMA. Welcome to the JAMA News Podcast for April. We're going to be talking about three stories today. I'm Becky Volker, Director of JAMA Medical News, and a couple of my colleagues are joining me today. We're all from our home offices. We're all going to say hi. This is Rita Rubin, and I'm outside D.C. I'm Jenna Bossi, and I'm in Chicago. As am I. So we're going to talk about three stories, and this time around, we're going to do all COVID-19 stories. Our first story is about dialysis and COVID-19 and some of the concerns that people working in dialysis centers and their patients are having. Rita, this is your story. Tell us a little bit about it. There are about half a million people in the United States who are on dialysis because they have end-stage renal disease. And virtually all of them go into a dialysis center. So this is like a group of high-risk patients for COVID-19 who can't stay home. They have to go to the dialysis center typically three times a week, three to five hours a week. And dialysis centers for the most part, do not have individual rooms. They usually have one big room where a group of patients dialyze at the same time. And it kind of hit home when the news got out that the first two people in the United States to die of COVID-19 just coincidentally had dialyzed at the same dialysis center in Seattle different days, different shifts, but the same center. I haven't seen any documented evidence that COVID-19 has been spread within a dialysis center, but anyone who needs dialysis is going to be high risk for the disease. They can't stay home. Dialysis centers have really had to scramble to come up with steps to minimize the risk of transmission in their centers. A lot of centers, not every center, but a lot of centers do have one isolation room maybe that has been for hepatitis patients for the most part. And so some of them are able to put the people who have COVID-19 in those isolation rooms. I think an important message is people need to get dialysis. And the centers are doing everything they can to protect their patients. The chief medical officer for large nonprofit chain of dialysis centers said that her patients have told her they feel safer coming to the dialysis center than like going out to their doctor's office. As recommended by the CDC, they're checking all staff members and patients when they arrive to see if they have a temperature, you know, and asking them other questions about possible symptoms or exposure to COVID-19. But it's reached the point where the two big dialysis chains, Davida and Fresenius, who dialyze about 85% of people who are on hemodialysis in the U.S. dialyze at a DaVita or Fresenius Center, but they've had to actually designate 
uh, certain centers in certain cities as COVID-19 only centers. There are so many infected patients that they're thinking one way to stop the spread is to congregate them in the same center, or at least if they don't have enough to fill a center seven days a week or six days a week, however many days are open, then they might at least designate a particular shift, typically like the last shift of the day as the COVID-19 shift. And then it would give them an opportunity to disinfect everything before the next shift the next morning. It sounds like they responded very quickly. Do you think that's the case? Yeah, I think so. I mean, they really had to. They're aware that they have these high-risk patients, and they really, I think one of the biggest concerns was that people wouldn't go in for dialysis. I noticed a tweet, I think it was after my story went online, but somebody tweeted about they had a relative who was so scared to go out, they didn't go their dialysis treatments. According to this tweet, you know, and who knows about the credibility, but this person died. And I know that that's a really big concern of people who operate dialysis centers, that patients won't come in and they just can't keep skipping dialysis. And so that's why staff members are masked. They're giving masks to patients. I talked to the chief medical officer of a kidney treatment organization that has nine dialysis centers. And he said, they're really emphasizing in New York that people need to wear the masks going from their home and back to their home because a lot of these people take, they call them ambulettes. They're vans that carry like three or five patients at a time. And so that's when they really have to be concerned and not really as much when they're in the dialysis facility because of all the precautions that are being taken there. I think another interesting point is very few people do home dialysis. There are two different methods. You can do hemodialysis at home. There are people who have machines in their home. The more common method of dialyzing at home is peritoneal dialysis. So it doesn't require a machine, but not that many people dialyze at home. And now dialysis centers and dialysis organizations have been telling me this has really made them think more about encouraging home dialysis. Some people don't even learn that that's an option. But at this time, when people are being told to stay at home and minimize trips out of their house, it does seem like it would be great, especially if someone is just starting dialysis, then this might be a good time to learn it. I think it could be difficult for older people who have been doing hemodialysis in a center for for years. Another thing I thought was interesting in the story and sort of scary is the possibility that dialysis centers might have to shorten or decrease their treatment sessions. There may be a greater demand for dialysis because the transplant programs, even though federal government says organ transplants are essential surgeries that should not be deferred, it's happening in hospitals. They're overwhelmed with COVID-19 patients, and they know candidates for kidney transplants at least can continue to use hemodialysis, and so they're putting them off. That may mean 
an increase or at least not the typical decrease that might have been seen in a normal situation where people are getting transplants and going off dialysis. And dialysis centers might have to cut back on the length of treatment sessions, at least temporarily. But that just doesn't work for everyone because there are some people who, if they don't get enough dialysis, then fluid can build up in their bodies and can cause heart problems and other serious issues. So it's not something that would be usable for everyone. But I think the message is just because you have COVID-19 doesn't mean you can't get dialyzed because they're making accommodations and they don't want people to stay home. And if you don't have COVID-19 and you need dialysis, you shouldn't be overly concerned about the risk of going into a dialysis center because they are going to great lengths to protect their patients and their staff. That really is the bottom line, that people really have to feel safe to be able to get their dialysis. And it sounds like they do, which is really good to know. Next, we're going to move on to a story about antibody testing, which has been grabbing headlines and being discussed on news programs every day. So this is one of Jen's stories. Jen, tell us about this. Yeah, so this was a really interesting piece to work on. There's a lot of interest in antibody testing, as you said. So the idea behind antibody testing is to test the blood of people to see if they've developed antibodies against the virus that causes COVID-19. And so what this can do is confirm suspected infections and also tell you if a person was infected and didn't even know it. As we know, there's a lot of people who appear to be having asymptomatic infections. So there's different uses as well. It's being used first to screen donor blood for convalescent plasma, which is an experimental therapeutic where antibody-rich plasma from recovered COVID-19 patients is being transfused into people who are critically ill with COVID-19. And this is something that's being trialed all around the world right now. So that's one of the uses. Antibody testing is also being used for something referred to by some as serosurveillance. Sero, of course, refers to serology. So the idea is to do surveillance of a population based on antibodies. So how many people in a community or in a state or in a country have been exposed, which also tells us what is the mortality rate, which is something that epidemiologists are very interested in. Another potential use of antibody testing that's very interesting, of course, to the general public is the idea that if you have been infected and have antibodies, you are probably going to have some protection against being reinfected, which means that you can potentially re-enter society and go back to work and feel more comfortable being part of society again. And this is, of course, a very big deal for healthcare workers to be able to do their jobs without having to worry that they might get infected or might infect somebody else. But there are still a lot of questions. There's questions about both false negatives and false positives coming out of the test. So false negatives are a big concern if the person is tested too early in the infection because they won't necessarily show the antibodies. Most people, it appears, uh, develop the antibodies after a week of being infected. 
And so if you test them earlier than that, they might not have antibodies. So you might think that they haven't been infected yet. And this can be a problem because you're, you're missing those cases and those people might potentially start going out and about and infecting other people. And then there's also a question of accuracy around false positives. The problem here would be you might have a false sense of security because you think you've been infected when you actually haven't, and you might go out and get infected. A big concern that came up when I was reporting this story was that because there is such a shortage of the PCR tests, which look for active infection, healthcare facilities, physicians might consider using serology testing instead of PCR testing. But everybody I spoke with was very clear that antibody tests should not be used to diagnose active infections for the very reason that I discussed earlier, the possibility of false negatives. So those are some of the concerns that have come about. The FDA has approved, to my knowledge, four antibody tests under emergency use authorization, but there are many, many, many antibody tests that are being offered without emergency use authorization. And all these companies really have to do to be allowed to offer their tests is to say that the tests have been validated, sort of like an honor policy. And there have to be some disclaimers with the tests. For example, they're not supposed to be used to diagnose active infections, and they're supposed to be very clear about that. And there does appear to be some movement at the FDA to give these tests a little bit more scrutiny. But right now, there's a lot of tests out there that are starting to become available. And so this is something that the general public is going to be hearing a lot about. Here in Chicago, antibody testing is already starting to be offered clinically. It is a really interesting and important story. And What I wonder about is, did any of your sources talk about how we're going to weed out the tests that have false positives and false negatives? How are we going to be able to really get to the accurate tests? Yeah, there's a lot of effort, I think, around trying to see which tests are accurate. So as I mentioned, the FDA does appear to be starting to scrutinize the tests a bit more. And then the World Health Organization is working with partners to test the accuracy, the sensitivity and specificity of a lot of these tests. And there's other efforts going on all over the world, I believe, to see which tests are actually accurate, which is going to be very important because my suspicion is that a lot more people are going to get antibody testing than PCR testing overall. But there are still a lot of big questions about what do antibodies actually mean? So The assumption that scientists have based on other coronaviruses that we've encountered is that people will be protected for at least some amount of time, but they don't know that for sure. And even if we are protected, we don't know for how long yet. And then there's also questions around, could people who have antibodies still be contagious for some period of time? So some people who test positive for the novel coronavirus antibodies still come up as PCR positive, which means they still have some virus in their bodies. The question is, is that active virus, is it replicating, is it shedding? And when I was reporting this story, I was told that we don't really know that yet. So still big questions. And that's going to be really important as we start using antibody testing to allow healthcare workers who've been sick to return to work, or as we start potentially using antibody testing to let the general public go back to work and start reopening society, which is a major potential use for these tests. So still a lot of open questions. I talked to a physician yesterday who told me, related to a clinical trial, which is a PI, they're doing I guess people call them look-back testing, testing people who have 
recovered and haven't had symptoms in four weeks. People said they've been fine and they're still finding that PCR testing is showing that they have active infection. I think that there are questions about, well, what does that really mean? Are they really still infectious? And Jen, I just wondered what you thought of the so-called immunity certificates. I guess that's what they're calling them in Germany. And I've, you know, seen the term immunity passport. Some people have raised ethical questions about that. I mean, I don't know, made me wonder if, you know, some people might think, oh, like they're anti-vaccine people who, you know, want to have chicken pox parties, bring their kids to get exposed, that if, you know, people desperate to be back in society might actually want to get infected because they'll think, oh, I'm not going to get that sick. I mean, I could see the reason, you know, if people are immune, why shouldn't they be working, especially healthcare workers? But I think it does maybe raise some ethical questions. Absolutely. And I can definitely imagine that we might start seeing situations where people are trying to infect themselves so that they can get back to their normal lives and feel comfortable. Hopefully people don't do that, but I don't think it's outside of the realm of possibility. And I do think that the concept of immunity certificates or passports, or as I called it in my story, sort of get out of isolation card, I think I called it. It does raise eyebrows, certainly and makes me a little bit uncomfortable for a lot of different reasons. But I also see how we're we're going to need to know who is immune once we know what the correlates of protection are in order to start reopening things up in sort of a tiered and responsible way. It's something that's going to have to be done responsibly, and it'll be interesting to see how different countries start implementing it over time. That's something that could be very important If, as predicted, there is a second wave of infections that begins in the fall, which is a really worrisome thing, even in April, for us to think about. Thanks, Jen. It's a really interesting story that I'm sure we're going to keep up on in the future. We'd like to move on to our next story, and that is about corrections, the issue of how to control COVID-19 in prisons. Prison health has generated a lot of controversy through the years, but this brings a very new dimension to it. And this is one of Rita's stories. So Rita, please tell us about this. Prisons and jails are not places where it's easy to practice social distancing. I mean, obviously, big concerns have been raised about the threat of the novel coronavirus in these facilities. In a lot of prisons and jails, hand sanitizers have been banned. I'm not quite sure why. I don't know if it's because of the alcohol content. Soap is pretty scarce. I mean, so all the measures that people are supposed to take to minimize the risk of being infected are not available to people who are incarcerated. When I wrote the story, I believe there had been one death from COVID-19 of somebody incarcerated in a federal facility. And just curious, I just checked to see what the number was now, and I was pretty startled. The Bureau of Prisons has about 144,000 people incarcerated in facilities that it manages around the country, And 23 incarcerated individuals as of yesterday have died from COVID-19. And 
I think it was pretty shocking that there is one facility in Lisbon, Ohio, where six people have died. And there have been no Bureau of Prison staff members who have died. But in this one facility in Ohio, six people um, who are incarcerated had died. In a facility in uh, Butner, North Carolina, five people who are incarcerated have died. There are just some basic challenges here. I mean, one thing that the Bureau of Prisons has been trying to do, and also a lot of state corrections organizations, and I guess like county jails, is they're releasing people early. If people have been incarcerated for a nonviolent crime, if they're nearing the end of their term anyway, you know, if they're about to go on probation, so they're being released early. That's one thing that prisons and jails are doing to try to make more space in the prison. I read about prison and jail mess halls. This is not exactly putting people six feet apart, but instead of having a bunch of people crowd around a table, they might just have like two people at a table. People share bathrooms, not the cleanest environment. And so there are a lot of strikes against jails and prisons as far as trying to minimize the spread of the novel coronavirus. Now, as of April 21st, 540 people incarcerated in Bureau of Prisons facilities have tested positive and 323 staff. So it's not just a concern, obviously, of people who are incarcerated, but it's also a concern of the staff. At the Fulton County Jail in Atlanta didn't have one of the non-contact thermometers to check people's temperatures as they were coming in. Whenever somebody is brought in to be, you know, held in the jail, it's routine for them to be checked, not just for COVID. I mean, it's always been routine for them to get a workup in the jail as far as their health. And so their temperature is taken in that situation. But there was nothing for, you know, the staff members coming in, lawyers coming in, you know, I guess other visitors, they weren't taking their temperatures. And then Finally, they got a donation of one of these infrared no-contact thermometers. So that was great. Unfortunately, the jail has two entrances, so they can only check the people coming into one of the entrances. And I heard one of the officials of that jail, I mean, I really felt for him. I heard an interview with him on the local NPR station in Atlanta and talking about he was doing what everybody else is, you know, doing trying to find hand sanitizer on Amazon or eBay and and trying to find thermometers. And he was having no luck. You know, it's kind of like in the nursing homes. I mean, people are pretty much stuck in close quarters and that's just a perfect setup for the virus to spread. You know, I wondered about something when I was reading your story and even though HIV and the novel coronavirus are very different viruses, have there been any strategies that prison officials have learned through HIV prevention in prisons that they may be able to use now? That's a good question. I don't really know the answer. I think that, you know, one issue is HIV isn't spread through droplets. So it's just not as easily spread as the novel coronavirus. I don't know how much could be taken from 
what jails and prisons learned about controlling the spread of HIV and applying it to minimizing the spread of the novel coronavirus. In your story, Rita, um, it looks like one of the measures that correctional facilities are taking to limit the spread is to eliminate visitors altogether. And and it looks like in all states. And then some states are also limiting legal visits. So lawyers are not able to visit with their clients. That has been another approach that it seems like everybody's taking, including the Federal Bureau of Prisons, including all the state departments of correction. They're giving people who are incarcerated more phone call privileges and, I guess, email. I mean, not unlimited phone calls, but more than usual since they can't get visitors. But of course, you know, the issue about keeping lawyers out, I mean, again, they can talk to them on the phone, but it's obviously not a permanent solution. Inmates frequently have to go to court, so they go out of the facility and then they might come back in. And I think they're even maybe trying to minimize that with video conferencing. It's tough. And I think that's another reason that people who are incarcerated are struggling, fear of the novel coronavirus because they can't have any visitors now. But I think that, you know, people realize that it's just something that needs to be done because, you know, once it comes in to a jail or prison, once the coronavirus comes into a jail or prison, it just takes one person. There have been calls to release incarcerated people who, for example, are near the end of their sentence for nonviolent crimes. To what extent is that happening as a a way of reducing crowding during the pandemic? No, it's definitely happening. It's the Federal Bureau of Prisons. That's an approach that they're taking with federal facilities and states, many states. I know my home state of Maryland, the governor a few weeks ago encouraged that step as a way to, you know, basically just make these facilities less crowded. But again, if somebody is going to be released, they can't just be released immediately because it's possible they've already been infected in the prison or the jail, and then they would just be carrying the infection out. They might be pre-symptomatic. And so I think that what a lot of places are doing is they've identified people who can be released early but they still basically have to be in quarantine for two weeks to ensure that they're not already sick. One of the examples in the story you told was so eye-opening. It was about a man named Patrick Jones, who was in a low security facility in Louisiana, and he was serving a 27-year sentence for possession of cocaine with intent to distribute, and he contracted the virus and he died. And this is certainly something that's come up in the discussion about coronavirus in prisons is that there are a lot of older people who are incarcerated who, because they received really long sentences decades ago, and if they had been convicted today, they probably wouldn't have had such a long sentence. That's another issue besides the fact that the prison population is aging, you know, a lot of people who are incarcerated have underlying medical conditions that place them at a greater risk for severe COVID-19. There are a lot of people with um, substance use 
disorders, and that can increase the risk of severe COVID-19. There's a little bit of a connection between looking at the dialysis centers and looking at prisons and jails, just because pretty much everyone is high risk who is either going to a dialysis center or is incarcerated. Fortunately for the dialysis patients, they can go home. Um, Right, exactly. These are all really interesting stories, and I think they're all so important for the moment we're in in history, too. And I'm sure we're going to be following these as time goes by. That's our podcast for today. Thank you for listening. We appreciate everyone who tunes in. And please join us again next month for the stories that we're going to cover in May. Again, I'm Becky Volker, Director of JAMA Medical News. Thank you.